Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary, Capturing the Killer Nurse. The detective said, what are you talking about? I said, well, we've been telling them they have a murderer on their hands for a while now. Today, we're talking to director Tim Travers-Hawkins and author Charles Graber. Charlie Cullen was an experienced registered nurse, trusted and beloved by his colleagues at Somerset Medical Center in New Jersey. He was also one of history's most prolific serial killers, with a body count potentially numbering in the hundreds across multiple medical facilities in the Northeast. Based on the best-selling book, The Good Nurse, and dramatized in the Netflix feature film starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, Capturing the Killer Nurse reveals the twisted story behind Cullen's hidden spree of murders and how his horrific actions underscore an even bigger danger still lurking in our healthcare system. Without a confession, he was going to continue to murder. He was going to continue to kill. So they asked me if I would meet with him and wear a wire. And I'm joined by Tim Travers-Hawkins, the director of Capturing the Killer Nurse, and Charles Graber, author of the book The Good Nurse, which is the inspiration for both the Netflix feature film and this documentary. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi, thanks. Thanks. Charles, your book kicked off both this documentary and the Netflix feature film The Good Nurse. How did you first hear about this case? It was a small item in the newspaper in 2005. I saw that the... Uh, said a serial killer nurse was attempting to donate a kidney from behind bars. And I thought that was the weirdest headline I've, I've ever seen. Um, and it was, the story was even stranger. It was, um, you know, this a guy named Charles Cullen, who was a nurse in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, had been, um, had been caught killing patients, overdosing them, presumably as a mercy killer. And, uh, and the story at that time was the system had kicked in, done what it was supposed to once it discovered his, that he was doing this and, and, and stopped him. And at that point, Cullen was attempting to donate a kidney um, to someone who needed one and had, had actually written to, to ask if he would be willing to do that. And he'd even, you know, matched for this person. So he, he, was, a, he was a match. And 
what was especially interesting at that point was that the family members of his victims didn't want him to be able to continue to play God from behind bars, if you will. And I thought this is really strange because a, a, another innocent person will maybe die as a result of this. Cullen wasn't, wasn't speaking to, to anyone. He was denying all, all interview requests. He wasn't even issuing a statement to the family members of the victims. He was sort of determined to disappear this way. And I think the story was going to be, be stuck that way. But um, I wrote him a letter and he started talking to me. And we went back and forth and I started visiting him in, first in jail and then followed him in person through his, uh, through his sentencing and, and other court appearances and then started visiting him in Trenton, where he is now still. And in the course of those interviews, I quickly learned that this story was much more than a very strange story about a kidney donation and a, a mercy killer, you know, someone who was misguided but had something that you could perhaps understand if you've ever had a loved one suffering uh, with, with, with illness or old age. Mm. So, Tim, how did you get involved with the story? What made you uh, want to make a documentary about it? Well, <clears throat> I was approached by um, a, a, another director turned producer right now, Henry Singer, who, who told me about the story and said, look, just get the book, read it, see what you think. I think you'll be surprised. And it really was an incredibly, you know, uh, surprising experience reading the book, what I thought would be uh, more of a sort of straight serial killer inside the mind of a killer um, book was in fact, what I saw as a really a kind of whistleblower thriller, really. And I just felt that it had such a strong political message. Um, it, it also, I think, just had this incredible ensemble, um, this incredible cast of characters that really went into all these different areas of society. And I think In Cold Blood does that similar thing. And I think it just did that so well, almost in the way that, you know, Dickens does, um, showing you all these different points of view, but then coalescing, bringing together all these characters perhaps, uh, you know, not necessarily the, the, the most likely people to meet in real life, but brought them together in this incredibly, you know, in this cauldron. And so for me, you know, the, the, the first thing that really made it speak to me was that. And, and I think um, the second time that, that, that I sort of had another moment of realizing, wow, this, this is going to be a fantastic documentary was when I was able to, you know, sit with Charles and um, he dug out some of the, you know, archive that he had. And this is, you know, real archive that of course features in the book, but, but can't feature in the same way as it does in a documentary, because in the documentary, you are experiencing it as the primary source that it is. And we listened to uh, some of the tapes from Poison Control. And I realized that, you know, we had uh, material that merited being told through another form. And I think, you know, obviously this is a story now um, within relatively quick succession that's had a, a fantastic book, a movie, a Hollywood movie, and now a documentary come out. Um, I think each of the forms really plays to its strength and brings something different. Yeah. Nurses Amy Lochran and Donna Hargreaves worked with Charlie Cullen, and Amy described him genuinely as the best teammate. And there was this sense that he could truly disguise himself as a good colleague and caregiver when he was working. Charlie was the best teammate. I loved working with him. He was an excellent nurse. And he always had a way of saying something that would make me laugh. Did you get the sense from lots of people who worked with him? I think there's often the sense when you reach a story like this after the fact, there's a lot of uh, retroactive um, sort of uh, suspicion that people have. So all of a sudden it's 
well, yeah, yeah, that guy always was a bit weird. And, you know, that sort of then stretches to like, you know, I always thought there was something up with this guy. And I think what was really brilliant and fresh about um, Amy and, and Donna's testimony is they were able to really put themselves back into the position they were in and tell the story, not in a retrospective way, essentially, sort of live through each stage of the journey that they went through in the interview. And, and that was something we talked about, you know, before the interviews as well as how to recall the way that you felt at the time and not to retrospectively add things onto that uh, because of what you obviously know now. And and I think the audience, because of that, are able to go through those stages. Of course, we know that they know now what has happened, but I think they are such compelling storytellers that they allow us to feel that. I think a lot of people would probably say that he was he was funny, he was weird, he had quirky behavior. But I I do believe almost everyone I've spoken to said he was really good at his job, quite professional, perhaps um, almost sometimes a bit too professional just you know in there doing his thing not really I, I think he was a team player with Donna and Amy but that's because they formed a clique together I don't think everyone on the, on the ward would say that he was a team player necessarily hmm. Hmm. well it strikes me as sort of like a grooming in a sense right it's like it, I, I think helping her with her medication really like making her lean on him is in some ways like you depend on me and so you'll probably not pay attention when I'm doing things that are a little bit off the way you would if you weren't depending on me. That's kind of how it's, it struck me. You mentioned the poison control tapes, and we hear that incredible audio, Poison Control in Newark, um, is called. Um, in the film, it's after we hear about the death of Father Gall at Somerset Medical Center. That nurse calls about the elevating levels of digoxin, and we hear Dr. Bruce Ruck on tape expressing grave concerns about what might be going on at the hospital. Off the record, there were two people people in the hospital before this that went hypoglycemic really strangely uh-huh. and we were starting to panic i'm gonna put it right on your hands you now have a police matter i'd like to hear about the role of poison control in this story um if you wouldn't mind talking about that charles because they do have this independent role and the hospital does not listen to them when he immediately raises his grave concerns or at least they don't respond uh, right away when he says this is a police matter. Can you just talk about that relationship and, and their role in this story? Yeah, absolutely. And the New Jersey poison control was really essential and they were on this uh, right from the beginning as you as you hear in those tapes. Uh, Bruce Ruck uh, heard the concern in the pharmacist's voice. Um, you know, the, So Nancy Doherty at, at, at Somerset Medical Center was really tasked at that point with uh, help doing the math on figuring out when somebody would have been given this deadly drug, this overdose, what time, how, how long would it take to reach the levels that they, that they measured? And then the idea being that they could then, as an internal investigation within the hospital, work backwards and figure out who was on shift at that time. And it was a, an investigative tool. And Nancy was tasked with the, the math, which involves some pretty hairy calculations, frankly, and a lot of body chemistry and all sorts of other things that are very difficult to figure out. And so she called New Jersey Poison Control for mm. that for that help. Okay. And giving those details, uh, the concern in her voice and some of the details that she gave alerted Bruce Ruck that, that right away this is a, a police matter. He says it out loud. And when you hear that, it's just electrifying because finally someone's saying it straight. Now, you have to remember that this, this happens months before it, it, the police are ever involved at, at Somerset 
uh, Charlie Collins continuing to work as a nurse, continuing to kill for the, for all of those months that the internal investigation is going on. So these calls go back and forth. Bruce Ruck's uh, superior uh, at Poison Control, Dr. Stephen Marcus, happens to be walking by while Bruce is on the phone and, and overhears this. Marcus is a very strong, uh, strong character as well. And he's, he starts getting on these calls back and forth with Somerset Medical Center that start with Nancy and reassuring her, but end up going to the board, the very top of Somerset Medical Center. You hear this conference room calls. It's really only after it's been said very clearly that we're worried that you have a, a murderer on staff and that this is a police matter. And if you don't, you know, I, I don't know what the consequences for you are, as, uh, but we're also worried about your, your patients. You need to be thinking about that. After all that's been said, it's also said by Dr. Marcus that, oh, yeah, every call in and out of New Jersey poison control is record, on a recorded line. Mm-hmm. And the silence that follows that is, is stunning. Uh, that revelation really kicks this into a different gear for Somerset because uh, the, the cat's out of the bag. Poison control, Marcus specifically, has also been alerting the DOH. He's, he's made this little secret fire into a, a massive smoking blaze, and um, it's only after that that the police are alerted through back channels um, to something going on at Somerset Medical Center, although they're not exactly sure what it is. Uh, at that at that point it's it's really stunning it's mm. three months we hear that it took them to actually act and of course they acted in this like very cautious way the major crimes unit gets involved and then there's this actually what i think is a kind of incredible piece of luck that the police get when they start looking into colin tim can you talk about this because you capture this you have to capture this visually on film of course we hear that when they start looking into his background they call another police department and there's just like a sticky note that actually sends them in this really interesting investigative direction. Uh, apparently attached to the report, there was a stick'em note. And that uh, little stick'em note indicated that a few months earlier, Pennsylvania State Police had requested basically the same information I was seeking. Some other cop at some other police department at some point also had an idea that there was something wrong with this guy and just thought to like put this other note on this file. Right, a stick'em note, as as uh, Tim Brown calls them. Which we, <laughs> we, right. we, we call them post-its. I've yeah, we call them post-its before. too. I, I guess that's yeah, regional. I mean, that's, yeah, I, it's great though. It's a much better, it's a much cooler way of saying it than post-it. Yeah, I think that question of luck is, is actually a really interesting one because there were also many other moments of what you might call happenstance, coincidence. However, I think it's like that that expression, you know, that the harder I practice, the luckier I get. What had happened really was that there were many people, you know, out there who had felt that something was up, who had tried to do something about it and had been thwarted by, you know, let's call it the system just <laughs> to be, to, be, to <laughs> simplify here, because um, <laughs> there are many different bodies, institutions involved. There were many people, many other whistleblowers, many other people who had suspicions who tried to do something who couldn't. But each time they did, in a sense, they left a little breadcrumb. They left a trace somewhere. And so I think in a way that you call it luck, what had happened was there'd been this sort of accumulation of, of moments like that that had got to a stage when Tim and Danny took on the case. They suddenly were able to find all these things that had been left behind. And, and really what... In a sense, the story of their case is a story of retracing and going back and finding one after another all of these different red flag signals, smoke signals that have been left sort of archived 
away somewhere. Um, And by uncovering each step, they then built this picture of, you know, the kind of killer that Cullen was um, and also what they were up against themselves in the kind of cover up they could expect. And I think, you know, that's probably one of the the areas that it differs from the movie in that as a screenwriter, what, what you would tend to do in a drama perhaps is to condense all of these different stories into and personify it into one individual. No, if something would have happened, he wouldn't have been able to get another job. The hospital would have done something. You would think so. so. Yeah. They're stonewalling us. You have to help us. And what's beautiful about, in, in many ways, the documentary medium and, and um, the, the nonfiction medium is that you're able to tell a more collective story and you're able to actually celebrate that this wasn't about really individual heroics. There were many instances of individual heroicism, but it was more about a collective effort, even amongst people who didn't know each other, um, even amongst people who never met. But actually, this sort of web of their individual efforts is what created, in a sense, the web that caught the spider, that caught Cullen. But they did, I mean, there were clues along the way, and there, of course, was pe- there were people along the way who suspected what was going along. We heard from a nurse at a Pennsylvania hospital who had worked with Cullen years before, uh, Pat Medellin. She told police that Cullen had been allowed to resign. Two of her patients had coded within a week who had been stable. She did some math after he left. She figured out that statistically he had more than twice the number of patient deaths he should have had. Um, then, there, of course, there was an administrative cover-up she alleges. And this is, of course, what a huge theme of your film is about, is that the administration, it is in their best interest to not in any way let these issues come out. And that actually is the biggest challenge when it comes to investigating, investigating these. Now, a big uh, character that we hear about but don't see in the film, of course, is your um, risk management person who comes up and up again, um, Mary Lund. Now, granted, we have to mention this is her job at the time is to do this job, this risk management job at the hospital. But I have to wonder, she does, she's a big presence in the film. Um, did you try to speak to her when you're making this documentary? Was, is she somebody that you tried to interview for the film? Yeah, we, we did reach out. We, we reached out to a lot of people um, from inside the hospitals, but were essentially uh, stonewalled. We, we did, we almost interviewed somebody pretty high up at Somerset Medical Center who pulled out, you know, at the very last minute. So um, it's a shame. We, we were always very interested in that inside story. And I, and I would like to sort of say that um, it's not really about um, individual blame. Um, right. Again, it's much more about talking about the systemic the, the structures that create this kind of behavior. Um, I always see these things in those terms. Of course, some people act better than others under certain circumstances. But I have, you know, I would even say to some degree compassion for people who are placed in really tough positions. You never know what's going on, you know, in their life. Yeah, it's really not about blaming individuals. It's, it's much more about the structures themselves and, and, of course, the profit incentive. It's really about the banality of evil. It, it, I don't think the individuals were particularly evil, in fact, evil at all. I think mostly what they thought they were doing was doing their jobs. You know, the, the good nurse is, is modeled somewhat as a title after the good German. The idea that the frog is sort of slowly boiled and the what is asked of, of people that are whose job it is to really, you know, look after the institution, a for-profit medical institution. You know, they, they really focus on trying to be the best they can at, at that task. And I think they lose sight of the bigger picture and, and sometimes their humanity. We do have roles to play, I think, in, in asking for something better, uh, something different. And I think the heroes in this story 
uh, took great risks. Tim highlighted that so beautifully. Uh, you know, and you see that certainly with, with Pat, with Amy, at risking their own well-being, their own futures, going outside of their job description to actually look after after patients. And that individual act, that giving of something that costs you something, it goes beyond a job description as a good administrator mm. or a good nurse. It's actually a good person. And I think that's the only real good that you can, the only way to measure what, what good is. As I hoped with the book, and I really think the documentary really brings it home, on the back of this, we can ask for something better, that there are more questions, that more people are willing to stand up and say, as a society, perhaps we shouldn't be profiting off of the certainty of illness and death. Perhaps we should bake reasonable solutions for, for all of us into our thinking about what we want from healthcare and what we want from hospitals. Mm. So I do want to just talk about Colin briefly because, you know, he really is at the center of this and you did spend a lot of time reporting on him and you mentioned that you have talked with him. It did surprise me that when police started investigating him and spoke to people about him, that there were people close to him who immediately wanted to talk about him and the fact that they weren't surprised that police were looking into him and that he did have a past that made them think that he would commit crimes in the future. And one detail about his crimes that really stuck out to me was that when Sharon Jones was talking about her Aunt Helen Dean's death, it seemed like Cullen was like impatient to inject Helen Dean, that he couldn't even wait for her son to be out of earshot before giving this injection. He went into the room. The male nurse came running out and he said to his mother, what happened? She said, he stuck me with the needle. It's not like he mm. was taking his time, you know, doing this slowly, quietly, secretly. Like, he was doing this quickly and impatiently. He seemed to be very prolific and impatient in this way. What was your yeah. sense of Cullen? Like, he was an accelerating killer, it seems. And this is a major difference for uh, from how the feature film portrays Cullen and what he did. Uh, they weren't mercy killings, although many of his patients were very sick. It was entirely driven by what he needed at the time and what worked for him. And so these were crimes of compulsion. And you you can feel that compulsion, especially poignantly when you, when, with, with Helen Dean's uh, murder, because it's something he needs. It's like a junkie. It's like he's injecting himself. You know, it's, 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 it's someone looking for a fix. And exactly what that fix is, um, I'm not as psychoanalyst. I'm, I'm not a shrink. I'm not qualified. To, I don't think anyone's qualified to say for sure. And uh, Charlie Cullen certainly wouldn't. Uh, that need was a, a, a sort of affirmation, I think. It was an affirmation of, of, of his existence, of his power, ultimately, of his smarts, of his worth. But it could have come in so many other ways. And so it's, it's actually a familiar reflex and a familiar need, just manifested in, in the most bizarre and awful way, uh, which, is, which is murder. Mm. Did his technique evolve over time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Charlie Cullen was killing people one way at the first hospital he worked at. Um, he worked at St. Barnabas Medical Center for five years. And that's where he was really injecting IV bags, as you see in the feature film. Those IV bags were identified. Uh, they did find IV bags with pinpricks. I mean, they're not on the sides of the 
of the of the bag, of course, because they'd leak. But you know, the, it looks better on camera. But and really, they're through the stopper there. Yeah. But those bags were collected. Colin was the only only suspect, and then he was moved on. He was actually just simply taken off the schedule. But he continued to evolve his technique. Sometimes it was direct injection and uh, with specific patients, uh, as you as you see with Helen Dean. Sometimes it was going through the piggyback port instead of injecting the bag itself. It's where you add sort of a little extra something into someone's IV line. Um, sometimes what really evolved, though, was how he got those drugs without being stopped. I say caught, but how he ev- evaded detection. And I think he, th- he thought he was very clever. He would never say this out loud, but he saw himself as a, as a sort of James Bond, frankly, working as secret agent, working inside the hospitals, somewhat as an, an agent exposing hypocrisy, but also just being very clever. You know, when he finally figured out how to manipulate the Pixis machines, the sort of drug cash registers that you see in the documentary, uh, figured out that cancellations open the drawer and that, you know, the aspirin might be right next to a, a deadly paralytic. And so that the re- the record would not show that he had withdrawn that drug. It would show that he canceled it, but it wouldn't show that he'd taken that drug, but he could still have access to it. When he realized that, he really manipulated that. And if you look back at those records of what he did and how he did it, it almost reads like a very long secret note Mm. to whoever would eventually find it. Um, And that note says a lot of different things. But part of uh, but I think the bottom line of that note is uh, look, look at how clever I am. Tim, though, didn't it strike you as being when I, you know, as a viewer, just like not that clever when you see how like prolific it was. It almost reminded me of like a kid working in a retail store, just like stealing cash from the register over and over and over again, just like canceling receipts. You know, you can't do that so many times and expect that there won't be a pattern that somebody will see someday. Yet he seemed to believe that he was above being caught. Right. Yeah, I mean, I suppose to some degree there is a, a real simplicity, especially later on with the Pixis. You think, well, how has no one noticed this? But yeah, I'll leave that question hanging because how did no one notice this? I think people would have noticed things. And and that simplicity in itself is is absolutely chilling when you realize. I mean, it needed um, certain things to come together for the detectives to get their hands on those Pixis records. You know, and they were there was there was obviously um, some misdirection let's call it um when they first tried to get those records but once they put the picture together often that's the case though um right retrospectively once with hindsight you see how a process has worked it seems also easy but imagine being them from the outside not ever having heard of the pixis machine before and having to you know get inside um that system to find that evidence um so i i suppose yeah it, it does seem almost immature um as you said this the sort of the teenage aspect, and, I, I, and it's a bit of a jump, but I, but I do feel like there's something very immature about Cullen. And, and throughout, I think what you see is that, you know, even in this idea of compulsion, he's just, he's just fucking incapable of taking any responsibility mm. for his own actions. You know, throughout, he just says, oh, I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop, as if it's this driving kind of inner thing. And that's when he's trying to frame it in terms of uh, mercy killings, as if he just couldn't stop um, ending people's suffering, which is absolute, you know, bullshit. In fact, what it is is he's he's just always trying to um, move responsibility off himself, um, off his own, you know, agency, away from his own agency. And you see that right up to the end. You see him in court, unable to face 
the truth and able to take responsibility again. Um, even though he pleads guilty, it's, it's not in a way that, you know, in any existential sense, takes on the burden of what he's done. It's just really going through the motions, as far as I can tell. And I think in regard to that, what's really interesting is when um, I watched the documentary for the first time with Amy, at the end of it, she turned to me and was furious and said that in many ways for the first time, she really felt and understood the way that he had deceived her mm. because she could suddenly see it in front of her, how performative he was in the confession, how performative he was when he was trying to spin this story of, of mercy killing and how in the end, the real, real Charlie is there when you see him in the court. And I think it's really important that that, that lands because that is, I think, the truth. You see him in court. He is a brat. Um, he is, he is a, a, a pathetic man unable to take responsibility, unable to face up for things uh, and just sort of sulking. And I think that's, yeah, that's the real him as far as I'm concerned. Tim, did Amy tell you why she was willing to wear the wire and work with the police to get the confession from Charlie? Why? Well, because he was killing patients. I mean, I I think in a way it's a very simple thing. But it's risky for her, right? It's it's risky. Of course it's risky. Um, And of course, I would never take for granted that we would all do the same thing in her position. But also, I mean, there's some very good reasons to do it. Uh, And and I think, you know, she is an extraordinary person. She is very single-minded. She really thinks for herself and acts for herself. That's very helpful in a context where individuals who are too institutionalized are not thinking for themselves, they're thinking for the institution. Um, The fact that she was already that maverick, um, the fact that she was already kind of an outsider who, you know, actually identified with outsiders like Charlie Cullen, I think that really helped place her as a person who was going to say, Fuck them. I'm getting you the stuff. I'm going to help you get what you need. I have an opportunity to perhaps prevent him from hurting anyone else. She said, if we have the opportunity to maybe stop a killer, of of course we have to stop him. Of course we have to do this. She obviously was conflicted in some ways due to her you know, personal relationship. And I, I think it's understandable that she felt deceitful towards Charles, who had shown her at least um, a tremendous compassion. You know, at the end, I think it was pretty clear to her what she had to do. Um, yeah. And I think, I think she would have done that and a lot more, to be honest. Yeah, she was actually really eager to jump in at that, at that point. Uh, she, I mean, she had been dragging her heels and was defending Cullen up until that, that moment or up until she... The detectives showed her enough to put a question in her mind. And Amy's sense of loyalty, as, as, as Tim, Tim mentioned, you know, her, her fierceness. She really wants to protect her friends, look after people. Cullen seemed like someone that needed to be looked after and protected. That was the type of relationship they, they developed. And when she had doubt in her mind whether a monster, as she would put it, had been saddling up next to her and her radar for the monsters hadn't gone off at all, that really bothered her. And she needed to answer this for the detectives, uh, for her patients. But I think, as, as Tim alluded to, really for herself, um, she needed to know whether or not her friend was harming the people that she was there to protect. I was not with my friend Charlie. I was not. It was emptiness. It wasn't darkness. It wasn't a monster. It was just nothingness. 
there was an aspect of betrayal mm. in that. She herself felt like perhaps she was betraying a, a friend, and that's what makes their relationship so complicated. And I really think the documentary brings this out so brilliantly. You know, once she had a question loaded in her mind and something she could do, uh, she was really ready to go. She was risking a lot, but she was gung-ho at that point. That's, I think, surprising to a lot of people because it's scary, right? You sitting across from a guy that you suspect is murdering people, seemingly unprotected, you know, with a, a fork and a knife in front of him, yeah. um, supposed to eat something and he's a poisoner. You know, who, who knows what goes, goes through your mind at that point? Um, she's, she's remarkably brave. And as she's the first to say, she's, a, you know, bullheaded. She, in fact, a bit of a pain in the ass yeah. is, is the way she puts it. In a, in a beautiful way. So no, she's a remarkable, remarkable character. Well, he betrayed yeah. her. He also betrayed the team. He betrayed, like, the code of nursing. I mean, I know enough nurses to know that when they work together closely, they become, like, very, very close because they really are in the trenches together. But the wire cut out abruptly in the middle of the conversation, which added a lot of tension as well. The thing that she said that really struck me, though, is she really was hoping he would say and that she would believe that he was a mercy killer because at least then she would have some understanding. She wouldn't probably agree, but she would have some understanding, right, Tim? Like she would at least have some feeling for him left in her, inside of herself. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all relate to that um, idea, you know, at least at least there was some logic that I could understand about this. And I think all of us who have seen people we love go through tremendous suffering in the, in the final stages of their life can relate to com- that, that impulse. And I think it's important for us to have an ethical discussion as a society about that because it, it's a really important issue. I can see why Amy wanted to believe that misguidedly he was acting out of compassion, because again, as, as Charles said, she would have felt deceived and she would have understood and, and felt the compassion that he showed to her. But I think very quickly and rightly, she, she came to the conclusion that it wasn't the case. Again, in a way, as she said, it, it almost wasn't until seeing put together the way that he treated her, which was similar to the way he begins his confession in this very performative way. Um, and then seeing that sort of contrasted very closely with the way he acted with the families in the courtroom, that in a way, I think the penny dropped emotionally for her. And God, imagine having to process that. I mean, it's, it's a lot to go through for, any, for an individual. Hmm. So, Charles, at the end of the film, there's a card that said that Somerset Medical Center supports new legislation for patient safety. What would that do? And are you thinking that perhaps this film and your story being on this enormous platform that is Netflix could get people thinking differently about anything that could change in the healthcare system to prevent something like this or at least help a little bit to prevent something like this from happening again? Yeah, I certainly hope so. It's, I think it's overdue. You know, the le- legislation to protect patient safety, uh, that, that sounds good to me. I would want to ask Somerset Medical Center what, what they mean by that. Some laws that they called casually the, the Cullen laws were passed after Charlie Cullen was arrested. Uh, but they, they really penalize nurses more than anything else. It's just a slap on the wrist for hospitals that fail to report them. So those laws don't really do anything for patient safety. They just take even more responsibility off the plate of, of the hospitals, frankly. Um, at least that's the considered opinion of, of all the nurse attorneys I've spoken to about, about this. So something more is overdue. And I would add that there is no statute of limitation for accessory to murder. 
I think the the ultimate hope that I would have was the hope that was expressed to me by by Tim Braun and Danny Baldwin when they first started agreeing to speak to me over 15 years ago because they were not keen to speak to a journalist, I assure you, and they, they actually thought it would be a waste of time. And they, they assumed the worst of the media. And they also assumed that what they knew and what they cared about wasn't going to make it into a story uh, because it was complicated and it wasn't the simple, you know, monster serial killer story that, that people need to hear. We were being played by the hospital administrators. It was flatly criminal what they were doing. And what they wanted was uh, something closer to justice. They wanted the administrations that had not helped them in their investigation, had they felt perhaps impeded their investigation, wittingly or otherwise, that had not acted on information that they had or shared that information. He, he wanted at least, a, they wanted at least a grand jury to be able to examine the facts and determine whether or not there was a case to be made. And that request, which they made formally, uh, was denied on a, on a political level above their heads. Uh, I think that's really what burned them. That's, that's that's the reason they didn't want to talk about this because they at first because they really felt it's like the end of Chinatown. Mm. You know, it's it's that's just the way the world works. If you really go head to head against the larger system, as, as Tim put it, I, I, I like that. Just it is the system. An individual gets crushed, and their hope is that perhaps enough individuals. You know, Netflix has a lot of individuals watching. You know, enough individuals can see this story, can hear this story for their own eyes. And perhaps even turn to the to the book and read the larger story in the background and understand why they should be angry, how they should be angry, and ask for something else. At least ask for a grand jury. That seems like a reasonable request all all across, right? Mm. You know, why why not get these answers? Yep. There's nothing nothing to lose for the innocent, and I think we we should demand. Well, what you've made here is so much more than a typical serial killer story. There are really unexpected and incredible heroes here and much larger issues at play to think about. Uh, Tim and Charles, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your documentary. It's really, really fascinating. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Tim Travers Hawkins and author Charles Graber. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.